you'd turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, and we'll be reading verses 16 through 20 again. Matthew 28, verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our Father, we do ask that you would teach us. Open our hearts to understand the truth of your word. And Father, we pray that you would take it deeper than our intellectual understanding, but that you will bring it to the depth of our will, that we may choose to believe that which you have spoken, and that we'll live our lives continually guided by your word as the source of truth. We pray for our children and children's worship, Lord, and ask that it would be a time in which they learn how to abandon themselves to you and to trust you in all of their lives. Father, may this be a time in which they are brought into a saving knowledge of you. And for us, O oh God, change us. Make us more into the image of your Son. Build our faith and our love for you. For the sake of you, our Savior. Amen. Um, we've been looking at uh, this passage all month. I could say all year, right? Uh, since it's still early in the year, we can, we can still do that. Um, and uh, I, I just want to break down in our minds and, and just think about, if you will, kind of sort of the, the grammatical structure of this passage and, and what we're looking at. In verses 16 and 17, we have uh, the, the context in which the Great Commission is given. Okay, and the context is one in which the disciples have uh, come up to the mountain that Jesus commanded them. So what we see about that is that the Great Commission is given to disciples. And it's not just your run-of-the-mill disciples. These are obedient disciples, right? Disciples who trust Jesus enough that they're going to travel all the way across uh, Judah and they're going to climb a mountain in order to meet with him. And, so they're, and they go to specifically the mountain that Jesus had designated. So we see something about these disciples. And from that, we draw out the idea that if we're going to fulfill our purpose, which is the Great Commission, we need to live as disciples of Jesus, just like these disciples. And in verse 17, you see that when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And so we see the, the second element of the context of the Great Commission is that if, if we are to fulfill the purpose, we're also going to have to live as worshippers of Jesus, just as these disciples were worshippers of Jesus, recognizing it's not our perfection of worship that matters because we may doubt just as they doubted, but Jesus will perfect that. But we need to be uh, disciples and worshippers of Jesus. This is the, the beginning. And then verse 18, he says, All authority has been given unto me. And then he gets into the heart of the Great Commission, verse 19, which is, make disciples. That's the imperative. He has three participles that talk about that. We're to make disciples, first of all, as we go, 
And that's a, a word that meant the second you leave here, start making disciples. And that's to us the same thing, that it's in our moving about that we make disciples. And we make disciples in two ways in particular. One by evangelizing. He says baptizing. And we spent some time looking in to understand how that's connected to evangelizing. And the other by equipping. And that's the teaching them to obey. And so these two ideas of, of how we make disciples through evangelizing and uh, instruction. Okay? This is the, the structure of the passage. There, there are times when we look at a passage that we need to ask questions of the passage. And one of the questions that comes to mind is why verse 18? Right? It would have made all the sense in the world to say, verse 17, that they, when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And he spoke to them saying, all, then he spoke to them and said, go therefore and make disciples, right? That would have made sense. But for some reason, Jesus first said, all authority has been given to me. He could have just said, go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you. And it would have been fine, right? But he ends it with the end of verse 20, which raises a question in our minds as well. He didn't have to say, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, right? So why does he have these two statements that surround the Great Commission? I think the answer is, is reasonably obvious, right? So we'd be confident in doing it. We're going to be successful, right? There's no question whatsoever that success is ours if we will but trust God enough to move forward. And so Jesus gives us that so that we would be confident, maybe aware that we could easily be timid about the whole thing, right? And so he's speaking these words to strengthen us ahead of time. If he has all authority and he's with us, we can be confident, can't we? Let's look at that confidence. And there are two elements of the confidence that I want us to see. The first is that we can be confident in Jesus' authority. To be confident in Jesus' authority. I read a story about a a governor, he was governor of a state, and he was running for, for office, and he'd spent uh, all day uh, knocking on doors and meeting people and, and speaking, and, and it came uh, a little bit early afternoon, but he hadn't had anything to eat all day, and, and his next uh, assignment was to go to a church barbecue and to talk to the people at the church barbecue. So he shows up at the church barbecue, and he takes his plate, and he's walking through, and he gets his food, and he's, he realizes he's just really hungry. And he gets by, and, and the woman puts a piece of chicken on his plate, and, and he stops, and he says, you know what, I, I've been working all day, I'm really hungry, can I have a second piece of chicken? She says, no, I can't do that. We've been told there's just one, one piece of chicken per customer, that's all. So, and, and, and he's a little, well, but I'm really hungry. <laughs> and so he looks at her, and he says, I don't do this very often, but, but, but he says, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. And she says, that's very nice, sir. Do you know who I am? No. I'm the woman who serves the chicken. And I've been told, one piece per person. Move on! <laughs> Amen. Amen. Um, I like that because I think it teaches us an awful lot about authority. I like the definition of authority. That authority is the right and power to rule. Both are necessary. If you have the right to rule, but you don't have the power, you're at best a figurehead, right? But if you have the power, but not the right, you're an oppressor. 
Proper authority is having the right and the power to rule, which is precisely what that woman had. She had been appointed to the task of serving the chickens. She had the right to do that. And she had the power in the form of the tongs by which she would pick up the chicken and put it on your plate. So she had the right and the power to rule. And she did. And she ruled justly. And I just really appreciate that as she, she shows us something about Christ. The right and the power to rule. Jesus says, all all authority has been given to me. He says, has been given. That's the translation that we use. The, the word is in the aorist in the Greek, which means it's a completed action. We usually translate it in, in a past tense, but it has to do with the fact that it's done. He is already at this moment, when he's about to give the great commission to his church, he already possesses in completed form all of the authority in heaven and on earth. I think we get a, a, a picture of the giving of that authority to him when we look at 1 Corinthians 15. Remember, 1 Corinthians 15 is, is all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in verse 27 we read, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. He's already done it. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. That means God the Father did not put himself in subjection to God the Son. It's, he says that's obvious. He says in verse 18, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. A lot of subjecting right there, right? It's a, would that be a subjective sentence? I don't, I don't think so. But beginning to see the, the, the picture, as it talks about God the Father, when God the Son is raised from the dead, at that moment that he had, he had laid down his glory, he had emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a servant. He had lived his life being a baby, growing up, living his life under the law, living himself perfectly in this law, in an oppressed society, living before God the Father, and then he has even submitted himself to the indignity of being hung upon a cross, of having the wrath of God put upon him, and he dies. And then when he's raised from the dead victorious, it is at that time that the Father, in raising him from the dead, bestows upon him all authority in heaven and on earth. It has been given to him. He now has authority over everything. And it's at this moment that this has occurred. And so Jesus, as he stands as the resurrected Lord, is declaring to his church, all authority has already been given to me. That which is spoken of, even in Psalm 8, has come to pass. Psalm 8, verse 3, he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Now that's true of all of mankind, right? We are a little lower than God. We are, we are the second of all of creation, above even the angels. The angels are ministering spirits who serve us. We're in this great exalted position. We can't understand why. And yet, it's much more true of the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? That's where the reality is, and Jesus knows that. The book of Hebrews, he talks about this and, and applies this to Jesus as well. All authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. And if we're confident of that, then we can overcome the enemy, right? 
Because Jesus has all authority. We can overcome the enemy. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God is talking to the serpent. And the serpent, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And you shall bruise him or crush him on the head, and he shall crush you on the heel. Switch those. Probably ought to read it. <laughs> you will crush him on the head, and he will crush you. You will crush him on the heel, and he will crush you on the head. Whatever. <laughs> You get the point. And he's talking about the enmity. There was no enmity up until this point. There had been none. This is the beginning of all enmity. And it's an enmity which begins by Satan coming against God and bringing humans into an unholy alliance with him. And God says, I'm going to put an end to that. And I'm going to put enmity between the, the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So that Satan is now going to be at enmity with man. That's the first enmity that we see. The enemy that we talk about that we overcome is the evil one. So that we see in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That's what our battle is against. Our battle isn't against people. Our battle isn't against human beings. Our battle is against the evil one. He's against the devil. That's who our enemy is that we can overcome. And we can overcome him because all authority has been given unto Christ in heaven. In all the spiritual realm, Christ has authority. He rules. So how do we overcome the enemy? The first way that I see is, is shown to us in Jesus' description of, of Satan in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, as does not stand in the truth, because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So we see that Jesus is pointing out that a part of the nature of Satan is that he is a murderer. That what he sought to do with Adam and Eve in tempting them was to murder them. And he wanted to murder them because they were the very image of God. And he hated God and he wanted God's image to be eradicated. He wanted God's image to be taken away. And the Jews at that time were of their father the devil. Why? Because they were wanting to kill Jesus. They wanted to also be murderers. And so how do we overcome the enemy? Maybe we overcome the enemy when we choose to value life. I'm sorry. Did I say maybe? I misspoke. We overcome the enemy when we value human life. When we have the capacity to look at another human being and see in that person the image of Almighty God and therefore we treat them with the dignity that is appropriate to such an image bearer. At that time we begin to destroy the evil one because isn't he whispering in us? Isn't he whispering in such a way that we have conflict with one another? That's why he's called the accuser of the brethren. He's accusing your brethren to you all the time. And you see these individuals and you find yourself in conflict. And you begin to fight with other people. And you begin to despise other people. And you begin to mock other people. And all of this is you're bringing them down and you're not treating them with the value that they possess as the image bearers of God. And in so doing as we're following after what Satan is whispering in our ears, we're being overcome by our enemy. But when we stand against it with love and kindness, we overcome the enemy. And we overcome the enemy, why? Because Jesus has been given all authority in heaven. So we don't have to give in to Satan when he's whispering to us the lies seeking to murder our brethren. 
We also see in John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. You see what Satan wants to do by tempting us. This is the second area in which we can overcome him, is by resisting temptation. Satan wants to tempt us, knowing that as we give ourselves over to sin, we become slaves of sin. Instead of living in freedom, we can often live our lives enslaved, in bondage to the sin that continually tempts us. We can begin to give ourselves over in the wrong area, whatever that sin might be that, that, that pulls upon our heart. Maybe it's the sin of greed. Maybe it's the sin of, of avarice. Maybe it's a, the, 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 the sin of uh, whatever it may be. Anger of our own wrath. And sometimes we, we, we feel that pull against us. And that's at those times we need to remember Galatians 5.1 that tells us it's for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore stand firm and do not submit yourself to the yoke of slavery again. I would add, ever. But I'm going to stand in freedom. Why? Because it's what Christ has bought for me. It's the evil one who wants to enslave me, right? Christ wants to set me free. Which one am I going to give myself to? Am I going to overcome the evil one by resisting temptation? Yes. And I can resist temptation, confident of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. For no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able. Do you believe that? Sometimes. What I need to do is I want to remember it all the time, right? When I see that temptation, it feels like I just have to give in. When I see that temptation to begin to become angry with some other person. When I see that temptation that I want to be short with someone. When I see that temptation that I want to mock someone. And I want to act as though I'm better than that person. Any of those temptations, as I see them coming, I need to say, I need not give in. I can resist. And to choose to resist in that moment and overcome the evil one. To be confident in Jesus' authority, first of all, means that I'm going to know that I can overcome the evil one. Secondly, I want to invite people to faith. I think sometimes we're, we're given opportunities to invite people to faith. And we're just afraid to do that because we're afraid they don't want to. And we're afraid that if we invite them, we're going to be pushing them against their will, Right? And we hear people complain about that. I grew up in a, a religious organization uh, that believed that the only sin was forcing your will on someone else. And by forcing your will, they meant what we would call evangelism. And so that the only sin was actually being a Christian, living obedient to the Great Commission. It was fascinating. But we can begin to adopt that because the world around us is telling us the same thing, isn't it? And we hear it all the time and we feel it in our hearts. But what if Jesus has all authority on earth? Not just in heaven, but on earth. Not just in the spiritual realm, but in the people around us. What if he has the ability to turn the heart of the king wherever he wants it to go? What if he has the ability to work faith in the lives of the people around us? And he wants to do that and he wants to invite them through our voice. And maybe they didn't want to, but with an invitation, maybe now they do because he has all authority on earth. And he's working in them a desire to come to himself. Francis Schaeffer would speak of faith as believe, believing based on sufficient evidence. Think about that for just a moment. That's true for every one of us all the time, right? 
And not just when it comes to religious things. I mean, there's a lot of things that we don't know, but we believe based on sufficient evidence. And maybe it's that someone has spoken to us and that person's authority or expertise or their relationship with us is sufficient for us to believe them, right? Now that's whether we listen to News Channel A or News Channel B, we listen to them and, and we trust them, right? And we don't know for sure, but we believe what they're saying because it's sufficient evidence because this individual is saying us. And it's not just in news. I mean, let's, let's understand, growing up, that's what happens, right? As a child, why do you believe what you believe? Because your parents have told you and you trust your parents. Reminds me of a friend of ours whose uh, parents uh, told her that you pronounce it Parmesan cheese. And it wasn't until she was at a pizza place in college with her friends that she learned that her parents had taught her wrong. Horrible parenting. Funny, but horrible. <laughs> this poor girl was just taught wrong and she trusted her parents and all the while they're just snickering in the back. She, she, strike terror in the hearts of all of our children. But, but we believe because we trust our parents, right? And we trust the message that they're giving us. And a part of what we do as we grow up is we begin to, to learn, now I'm going to make that my own. I'm not going to believe it just because of them. I'm going to believe it for the second reason, which is personal experience. Sometimes we believe things based on personal experience, right? That's how we figure stuff out. I mean, we've all experimented. I, I don't know about you, but I remember hearing that a bowling ball and a marble fall at the same speed. To which I said, that's nuts. They got that wrong. They don't know what in the world they're talking about. These people telling me that, they are just idiots. They're, there's no way. And so I did a test. And the first thing I discovered is, that's a real hard test to do. Right? <laughs> Second thing I learned is, they actually were right. Huh. Who knew? But now I know, not just because they told me, but now I know because I have personally experienced it. I've experimented and found it to be true in my own life. Either way, what was I doing? I was building enough evidence to believe. It doesn't have to be enough evidence for you. It's got to be enough evidence for me because I'm the one who's believing, right? You may need different evidence than I do. Okay, that's all fine. Each person develops that and begins to understand that. This is true when it comes to Jesus Christ as well. And we want people to believe based on sufficient evidence. So one of the things we can do is we can begin to present to them the testimony of the Bible as to his authority in heaven on earth. And as we present to them the testimony of the Bible that he has all authority, we begin to show them that he has all authority over the wind and the waves, right? Tell them the story of what happened as the storm was going and he was sleeping and they woke him and he stands up and he says, Peace, be still. And the wind stopped. And the waves were flat. And he showed he has all authority over the physical world, over the wind and over the waves. He showed that he had all authority over the physical elements as well. When he stepped out upon the water and he walked on that which was liquid, liquid as though it was solid because he was able to make it solid. When he said to the water and it became wine, he was able to take the elements and to change them into what he wanted them to be because he has all authority over the physical elements. When he took the bread and the loaves and he multiplied it to feed 5,000 people, he showed his power, his authority over the physical elements. 
He showed His authority over our physical bodies when He spoke to the blind man and He saw. When He took the hand of the lame man and He walked. When He cleansed the leper. He showed that He had authority over our physical bodies. And He showed that He had authority over life and death when He said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. When He said to Himself, Rise. And He comes out of the tomb victorious. Victorious over death. He showed that He has all authority. And we can speak that testimony to the people around us. And it should be sufficient. But if not, we can also share our own personal experience. It was in early 1982 that a friend of mine talked to me a little bit about Jesus. And I wondered. At the same time, I was going to this psychic development group that I already mentioned and they were answering some questions in some ways that were clearly absurd. I mean, truly irrational. And I began to wonder about them. And it was shortly after that that Robin began to witness to me and to tell me to read the Bible. And it was through these moments that I now can see that God began to invade my life. He began to sow the seed of doubt in the lies that I had believed. He began to put little kernels of truth that I might take step after step and just follow them until I came to a place where I came to know Him as my Lord and Savior. But it was in 1982 that He first invaded my life and transformed my life and made me into a new creation. And He's been faithful ever since. How has God shown Himself faithful in your life? No, no, this isn't a rhetorical device. This is something that I would strongly encourage you to jot down. Specific examples in which he has shown himself faithful in your life so that when you meet people, you can remind them, this is what God has done in my life. And those people that you know, that you formed a friendship with, who care about you, those people that you know, who trust you, will hear you speak of your faith in the faithfulness of God, and they will say, that's sufficient evidence for me. I will believe that God. And this is our effort to demonstrate that Jesus has all authority, not only in heaven, but on the earth. To ask people, will you believe? to the non-Christian that they will put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, believing that He's died for their sins. If you have not done so, may I invite you to do so today. Maybe this exposition has given you sufficient evidence and you say, yes, now I see that He is the Savior. To the Christian, we say, will you believe? Because don't we need to believe too? Oh, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I go back and forth. I'm up and down. I need to be reminded. I need to be invited continually to believe. Because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Be confident in Jesus' authority. Be confident in Jesus' presence. Verse 20. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, I am with you. He could have simply said that by using the Greek word eimi, which means I am. But instead, he chose to be emphatic and say, ego eimi. 
which emphasizes it. He says, I want you to be clear. I myself am with you. Now we read that and that, that's, that's kind of cool. They had just climbed the mountain. And when they got to the mountain, they saw Jesus and they fell down and worshipped him, right? They worshipped him because they had seen him walk on the water. They worshipped him because they saw him feed the 5,000. They worshipped him because they knew Lazarus. They worshipped him because they saw him crucified and risen. They worshipped him because they knew that he was God. And it's that one who says, by the way, I myself am with you. Let there be no mistake of what he is emphasizing when he tells them this reality. David Livingston was an explorer and a missionary in Africa. He became a medical doctor because he wanted to spread the gospel and he felt that was one way that he could do it quite well. And so he went to Africa and he begins to explore and he comes back to England and his, his time in Africa was very, very difficult for him. Um, he suffered uh, the, the hardships of traveling through Africa on foot um, and then while traveling through Africa on foot, he faced many bouts of what's probably malaria, possibly yellow fever, in which he's just horribly sick. And if you can imagine uh, how hard it was. I, I got the flu one time when we were on a two-day backpacking trip. And so we got there, and I got the flu that night, and I just felt awful. And what's weird is you're out in the middle of nowhere, and I felt so claustrophobic because I knew it was about a six-hour hike back to civilization, and I felt awful. Can you imagine being weeks from any civilization and having something like malaria or yellow fever and just how awful that would feel? And that's what he was dealing with. And no, by the way, one time he was attacked by a lion and it grabbed him by the shoulder and shook him and threw him. And it tore up his shoulders so bad. The only way he could get it fixed, he had to have his friend. He was teaching his friend how to sew up his shoulder. Can you imagine that? Just the, 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 the ability to think through that well. Not only that, but he engaged in battles with slave traders trying to free the people who were there in the interior of Africa. And he comes back to England and he's giving speeches and they ask him, what sustained you th through all of that? And his response is just magnificent. He says, it was a promise. The promise of a gentleman of the most sacred honor. It was this promise, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. It was the promise of Jesus that sustained him. He went back to Africa. He died in Africa. And when he died, they found his body right next to his open Bible. And his Bible was open to Matthew 28, and next to verse 20 was written, the word of a gentleman. He just believed it. He said, this is what he has said to me. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. It's a comfort. We can be confident in Jesus' presence, knowing that his presence is unconditional. He says, I'll be with you always, literally, all the days. How does he know? I know, you took the easy way out, right? He's God. Move on, Pastor. Psst, what's so hard? Yeah, 
But think about the significance of this, that he says to us, he says to you, I will be with you always. Well, won't there be times when I fail him? Won't there be times when I turn my back on him? When I go away from him? When I seek my own way? Yes. And he took that into account. And he knew that before he made this promise. I will be with you all of the days. Romans 5, 8-10 I think is a good explanation of this promise. We read Romans 5, 8 all the time. It's one of my favorite uh, declarations of pardon. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. But you know, He expands on that. Makes it more amenable. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Amen and amen. That's a great comfort. That's a great hope. So that Jesus, knowing this, can say, I am with you always, no matter what. Even when you turn your back. And you know where He is when He's with us? He's right behind us. You know what He's doing? He's tapping us on the shoulder. Saying, hey, 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 this way. Until such a time as He gets our attention. And we turn around and He says, come on with me. And He leads us back where we ought to go. He's with us always. You know, this gives me such hope. It's easy to think, okay, a church needs to have a purpose statement, so let's write a purpose statement so our church has a purpose statement because a church needs to have a purpose statement, right? I'd way rather have a purpose statement that's going to actually direct the decisions that we make as a church. And that's what we're trying to do. And what's our purpose? It's to make disciples. If we move forward in trying to make disciples through evangelizing and equipping, we can be confident because Jesus will be with us. His presence is unconditional. His presence is also effectual. If I were to say to you, as you're going into a, a very difficult meeting at, at work, and I say, well, I'll be with you in spirit, how much help does that actually offer you? Right? I won't even be there taking notes. Right? In the end, practical help, I, that is just nothing for you. Right? But when Jesus says, I will be with you. There's power in that presence. And he says, I'm with you to the end of the age. I don't know about you, but I think our, our minds tend to translate that. I'll be with you forever. Right? But it's so much more precise. The word end is a combination of two words. 
The first is, is sun, which we would say S-Y-N, sin. Not sin, sin, but sin, like synthesis, which is uh, to take two things and bring them together. It means to come together. That's what sun means. And the second one is telos. Telos, which is the root of telescope. It talks about the end. Okay? Now, telos is a word that I use as I uh, teach individuals how to preach. And we talk about, Jay Adams will talk about this in his book, uh, Preaching with Purpose. And he says, when you look at a passage, you want to find the telos, the end of that. What's the purpose of the passage? So the passage we're looking at today <coughs> is Matthew 28, 18, and 20. And we began by asking the question, well, why do those verses, why are they in there? Why, why does he say, all authority has been given to me and I'm with you always? And so we try to discern that and then we unpack that in trying to understand. What is, why is it there? To give us confidence. So we're looking at how we gain our confidence by looking at the telos of the passage. It's a word that's uh, used also in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, in which the Apostle Paul says, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The word perfect is the word telos to bring it to its, its absolute end, that which is the, the conclusion that it ought to have. Um, it's the word that's used in the perfect sense when Jesus is hanging upon the cross and he says, it is finished. To Tetelestai, in the perfect tense, means it's a completed action with ongoing effect. There's nothing in the universe that's been more perfect tense than his use of that word at that time, tetelestai. But he said it's finished. And you see what's at the heart of that is saying, that which I have planned has now been accomplished. I have moved it to this point at the perfect fullness of time to accomplish this end. And it's there. And it's the same word that Jesus uses, that I will be with you even to the end of the age. That which was planned. That which was planned for you. For God to do in you and for God to do through you. When I take mission teams on the mission field, frequently I have the, each member write out what they want God to do in them and what they want God to do through them, recognizing that both things are going to be taking place. Because both of those are God's purpose and he has a purpose in your life to do something in you and through you. And Jesus is saying, I will be with you until both of those are completed. Until both of those have been accomplished. Until both of those are finished. Until both of those have reached the end that I have planned. And oh, by the way, he doesn't say, and I will be with you until an end of the age, but until the end of the age. The specific end that he has had in mind from before the foundation of the world when he first wrote your name in the book of life. What is that end? Part of it is the end that he had in mind when he looked at Peter and said, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That end which he had in mind when he said in Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world for a testimony, and then the end will come. This end which he had in mind when he said to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you. 
For lo, I am with you always, even to that end of the age, that which God has planned. I read a story about Roger Staubach in his freshman year at uh, the Naval Academy. And he showed up for his first uh, football practice, and he was kind of a, a, a big, big name recruit. And as he came in, one of the upperclassmen came up to him and he said, I hear you're here to take my job. Staubach looked at him and said, No, sir, I will not take your job. He says, Well, I, I thought that's what you were here for. He says, Well, what is your job, sir? He says, Well, I'm the backup quarterback. He says, No, sir, I will not take your job. I'm going to start. Amen. Amen. I love that certainty of purpose. I love that absolute confidence. God has called Providence Presbyterian Church to make disciples of all the nations. And when we hear that, we can have one of two responses. One, we can be overwhelmed by it, right? We can be just completely overwhelmed and it reminds me of a wrestler who's getting ready to go into a difficult match and the coach comes up to him and tells him what he needs to do and and the wrestler looks up to the coach with kind of puppy dog eyes and says I'll try and the coach looks at him and says I'll try is for losers winners commit I love those words by the way I was that guy great word he knew just how to get me great word we can be overwhelmed when he says, go make disciples of all the nations. Or we can be confident because he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth and I will be with you always, even to the end which I have planned of the age. Be confident, brothers and sisters, as we move forward as a church. We're going to have a congregational meeting in a little bit and we're going to be looking at this next year. As we look at this next year, we're, we're still in the midst of, of COVID. I, I thank God that the, the numbers are dropping. They're about half of what they were two weeks ago in the last week, and that's great. Hopefully that'll continue, but we're still in the midst of it. We still got those hardships to overcome, right? We still live in a very deeply divided society, and our culture is divided, and the church is divided. But that just doesn't matter, because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Amen? And is he with us? Yes, he is. And so we can go out into this world and we're going to talk about how do we make disciples of all the nations. And we're going to make plans. And we're going to look forward with great hope. And we're going to try to work even in the midst of the context in which we are in order to see the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed throughout this world. And we're going to do it with confidence because we're confident of Jesus' authority and we're confident of Jesus' presence. Let's pray. Father, we turn our eyes to you again with great hope because you are the great and the awesome God who loves us unconditionally. Father, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for the privilege that you've given me to serve this congregation and to lead this congregation. Father, I pray that you will help us to live as men, women, and children who are confident in the truth of the gospel, confident in your authority, confident in your presence, and that you will use us to bring individuals to a saving knowledge of your Son. Would you do this that he may be glorified? Amen.